Hi, everybody. This is Heather Vickery. Before we start this week's episode, I wanted to give just a little disclaimer. In this episode, we discuss severe physical abuse, and it's an important topic and one that no one should be shamed about. But I realize it could be a trigger for some listeners, and I wanted to give you fair warning. Brave, joyful, love. The Brave Files are supported by Julian Desjardins, a certified strategist for small business owners. If you've already made that brave decision to start your own business, it's time to stop trying to do it all alone. Check out our show notes for more information or visit juliandesjardins.com. You are listening to The Brave Files, real stories from people living courageously. You can listen to the show anywhere you enjoy podcasts, and we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference, and we appreciate it. Now, here's your host, Heather Vickery. Welcome to the show, everybody. It's my pleasure to welcome Kirsten Palladino to the show today. Kirsten's story of survival is nothing short of extraordinary. She shows us not to take life passively, to fight for what matters, and never, ever give up. I've known Kirsten for quite a while through a number of different resources, and Kirsten, welcome. I'm delighted to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Heather. So Kirsten, let's jump in, and you have quite a long story, but give us a short start to your story and then we'll just, we'll chat through it. Oh, sure. Okay. So we all have a lot of stories, um, but I know that the story that we're talking about today is my Me Too story. And looking back through my story, through therapy, uh, through writing, I wonder, well, how did it all start? Some people who experience sexual assault, it is sometimes, you know, just this surprise out of nowhere. But I feel like my life kind of built up to um, the first incident when I was sexually assaulted, and then it just continued from there like dominoes. In the beginning of my life, um, when I was around two, my uh, parents realized that I couldn't hear very well, and that I w- they thought that I was ignoring them. And so they eventually you were ignoring I, them. That's interesting. And I have to just okay. say that I, I've known you, Kirsten, for a, a number of years, and we've been in the same room. We've sat on panels together, and I had no idea that you were hearing impaired until we were prepping for this interview. So I think that's amazing. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I um, it's not it was it's not very obvious. I think to some people, uh, my wife can tell because when we're together and people say something, I look to her like she's like, you know, <laughs> to my interpreter. So my parents realized that the, I, I, I wasn't ignoring them, you know, when they were calling my name or um, I wasn't reacting in church to the music and things like that. But they got me into a specialist and, and uh, eventually after, you know, some procedures, uh, like tubes in my ears and just trying different things, I finally got hearing aids. But I took those out of my ears in third grade. I was so embarrassed. I put oh. them in my drawer and my little desk in my bedroom. And I didn't get hearing aids again until college. Holy I, cow. I was so embarrassed. I, I have some physical deformities, like um, my thumbs are deformed and my left wrist doesn't turn over, which only prevents me from getting change in the drive through and serving in volleyball. <laughs> um, you. <laughs> you know, or I, uh, you know, can't play those slide clappy games, you know, but at the time, you know, as a child, I was so embarrassed and, and embarrassed of my over the ear hearing aids. And so I put them away and I did have some surgery in middle school, 
but it didn't make everything perfect. All the while, uh, my parents were getting divorced, and my mother um, was a nurse at the county jail. And when my parents divorced and I was eight, my mom and I lived in an apartment, and my dad and my brother lived in another apartment. And my mother fell in love with a convicted felon in the jail and decided to um, move him into our apartment when they were um, when when he was released when he, his time was up and he never hurt me she says he hurt her I completely believe her I just she says I witnessed it I don't remember it maybe I blocked it out sure um, but during that time of of him living with us and doing drugs and having people over that didn't belong in our apartment. Um, my mom really talked about sex a lot um, to me. I was, you know, it was at, treated me like I was her best friend rather than a mother-daughter yeah. um, situation. And, and cool. uh, yeah, it was, I mean, you know, now that I'm a mom, I'm like, I have so many different, you know, opinions on, on all of this of what I want to do differently. You know, my, my children are, are seven now. I have twin boys and I don't want to follow in her footsteps. But she, so she talked about sex, sex a lot to me and, um, and really uh, made it, you know, casual and, and, and not, not that big of a deal. So I saw her kind of like having, you know, kind of casual hookups uh, even after um, the felon moved out of our place. And she talked about sex a lot. And so those two things didn't necessarily, you know, I'm still trying to figure out like the play, like what makes a victim susceptible to being a victim in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I, I mean, absolutely rape is the blame is on the rapist. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what I'm like susceptible. I don't know. Um, Bad timing, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Absolutely. So many different factors for every single, you know, person who, who endures um, that type of abuse. But um, my, the way that my story led me to it was when I was 14, my, um, I, I was with my mom and my stepfather at a police officer's home. That was my new stepfather's best friend. And so my mother, my stepfather, my stepfather's best friend and his wife were all outside. Well, we first, when we got there, they, um, the police officer who owned the home made me a margarita. I was 14. My oh mom my thought that God. was super cool for me to have. And uh, I I don't know what it was or whether it was tequila or, you know, now I think he Maybe was... he roofied you, know, you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, they have access to lots of different medications and, um, you know, or, or, or uh, lifted drugs, you know, off of uh, people that they've arrested. So I have no idea what went in my margarita, but I was loopy instantly and I fell and I sprained my ankle severely. And, uh, and so I got put out on a pull-out sofa and they all went outside to enjoy their time in the hot tub. And apparently throughout the night, now I know this like two years later when I finally did tell my mom um, what happened, he was going, oh, I'm just going to go refill beverages. I'll check on Kirsten. And so he came in and I was so groggy and listening to Bill Cosby's victims talk about what happened with him. Mm-hmm. I, I'm like, Oh, I think, I think I was drugged because I was so groggy, but he started molesting me and coming back throughout the night. And, uh, and I 
it wasn't until like the final time that I remember waking up and him having his hands inside of me. And I, I don't want to try to get too graphic, but he, he kneeled, he kneeled down and he, he took his penis out and I was coming to more often, more, more than I had been throughout the night. And I realized that the lights were all out. Like the party was over. My mom was in bed in somewhere in the house. Oh my and, God. Uh, um, and he, he, I guess he, I don't know what he was going to do, but I, I got real, I got louder than I had ever been that whole night. You know, I'd said no before, but, um, but I didn't have any energy and maybe it was wearing off. I don't, or maybe I was even more scared, but I was able to get louder. And because we were not alone in the house, he packed up everything, you know, in his ugly little boxers and and then that's and then that's the last time he touched me. Um, that was the summer before I started ninth grade. Ooh, yeah, yeah. It was. And that's um, not the worst of it. No, no, it wasn't. And that was like the formation of my identity. Like I don't know. I you know of course I went immediately to what did I do wrong? You know I I was wearing these really like. I don't even know what I was doing wearing silky green panties, but I was wearing silky hunter green panties. That was really in, in nineties, um, in 1992. And, uh, um, and I was horrified that somehow he had caught a glimpse of my underwear while I was sleeping on the pullout sofa and therefore had lured him over because he just couldn't resist my underwear. I mean, if these were the types of ways that I was trying to regulate what happened in my head. And I, I just, I, I put it, almost out of my mind um, within maybe, I don't know, a month. Like by the time I started high school, I was just trying not to think about it. Did your mom know that this no. had happened? You no. never told her. No. Oh, you said two years early. You I said did. two years later. I did. I told her two years later. Yeah. And so, okay. um, so by the time I started high school at the end of August, so that was 4th of July. And, and I started high school at, at the end of August and a week into it, the quarterback of our football team, Jesus. Uh, zeroed in on me. And this is why a few months ago, I told you, I think on Facebook, like yeah. that I, I was, I was marked. And I really do believe that predators look, they look for the isolated ones, the ones who've mm-hmm. already been broken. And uh, I, I'm not alone in that theory. Tyler Perry's talked about it. Oprah's talked about it. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but they find you. And they find people in the first place that are easier to groom, especially in terms of children, but then even women in terms of like domestic abuse and men, there's just something that we put off and, uh, and it's not our fault. It's just, it's something in the nature of the abuser and the abused. And, and I'm no scientist in that matter, but I, I've definitely have experienced firsthand and take a breath. Yeah. Take a breath. And. (laughs) Yeah, we'll come back. So the the football player. Yes. So um, he he instantly um, was you know very interested in me, and I uh, was really flattered and and thought I thought that meant that I was amazing because he was interested in me. That that mm-hmm. that completely validated my entire existence, and and so I fairly quickly um started seeing him but it was a very it's bizarre when i think back to it because and i know that you have children so uh yes. 
I only saw him at night. He only wanted me to sneak out and see him at night. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I was instantly okay with that. I, the need to be wanted and accepted. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so it went from there. But shortly into our strange night relationship, where I completely thought I was his girlfriend, that's the, the just, I, when I look back and I think, oh, how naive were you? Um, mm. But normal at your age, yeah. I think. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't want to. It's okay. Are you okay? Continuing? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, uh, oh, okay. I was really determined to not cry during this interview. We may both cry. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I get emotional just thinking about, like, you know, the little girl. And what was I thinking and how did it all happen? But um, anyway, the, uh, the first time um, that what I'm going to tell you happened was I was... I was with this guy in um, just some random bedroom of somebody's uncle's apartment. And, uh, and he, he said um, that there had been the guy that my boyfriend that I believed with my boyfriend. And um, he told me that there were two guys hiding in the closet and they'd been watching us and that he wanted me to have sex with them. And I, said no like zero percent chance of that happening and he said if you love me you'll do it and uh, again I said no and I was 14 and he was either 16 or 17 and uh well then he just decided to leave anyway and took my clothes and oh my god um and they just opened the door and it was like the closet door and they've been there the whole time. And this is why I go back to the hearing because had I been a regular hearing person, I would have known they were there, but I don't hear little sounds like that. So that was the first time that I was raped. Um, the police officer just molested me. Um, and so that started in... November of 1993 and those incidents continued to happen until December of 1994 no I'm sorry 92 to 93 so they ended in December of 1993 and can I ask yeah so and remember that I firmly believe that all of the fault lies on him yeah you want to know why I kept going back to him I do and it's not from a place of judgment I mean it it, it breaks my heart for you. I have a daughter who's 13 and a half. And to think of her being in a position where she can't tell herself that's not a place to go back. I I just, my heart hurts for you. But yeah. yeah, um, Well, he, um, he had already, we'd already been seeing each other from September until November. um, And he had built up this idea that I was special. And then it, it seemed like an isolated incident. You know, one thing that one of my therapists told me is that trying to understand why I kept going back is been one of my biggest challenges. Um, I am sure. I am sure that it has been. uh, But one of the things about why it's so hard to, you know, people, but why, why we stay movement 
or, you know, the hashtag that was going around before the Me Too is, you know, why I stayed or, you mm-hmm. know, and the abusive situation is that- Absolutely. And, and it's, it's habit, it becomes habitual. You don't know how to get out. Yes. And, yeah. and we give tiny permissions as the abused and it builds over time to where you don't know how to get out because in some way you think that you let this happen because if not, you, you know, you would have left in the beginning and you didn't. So it just snowballs. And then if you hadn't told anybody and then you're not sure what it all means or, or what to do at all. And the thing that I did was I, this was like what happened to me at night. But during the day, I was crimping my hair and having pizza with my best friends, playing soccer. They had no idea this was happening at night. And I just, I lived two different worlds and I, I vacated my own body to endure it. And it was a long time before I really kind of got myself back. Yeah. But I finally did tell somebody and I think that was one of my braver moments into finding somebody that I I felt that I could trust and, and share what had happened to me. And that it's the weirdest thing how it happened. I had uh, I'd gone home for, or not gone home, but I, we had Christmas break. And then January of 1994, this girl comes up to me in the high school hallway. She just looked like the maddest person in the world. I was so scared. And she said, I heard you slept with my boyfriend. And I, I knew who her boyfriend was. And I said, no, no, you've got it all wrong. I didn't sleep with him. But I... I will tell you what happened if you care, you know, to, to hear it. And so the fact that she didn't just punch me because that's how she looked like she was going to do. Right. Um, and Sounded she sounded aggressive for yes, sure. Yes, very. I was terrified, but she agreed to meet me at some type of break or something. And so we sat outside. It was January in Georgia and um, freezing, but we sat on the curb by the high school and, and I told her what had been happening to me, including that her boyfriend had been one of the first guys to rape me and one of the last guys in the prior December, right before this January month. And she dragged me to the counselor's office Oh! and she saved my life. Wow. I literally have chills up and down my body. It was a big deal because so many women who are involved with abusers or friends or your, you know, your brother, your, um, and women can be abusers too, but we stand by the abusers, we as humanity, because we couldn't imagine them doing something like that. Not my friend, not my brother, not my son, not my boyfriend who wouldn't do such a thing, but she believed me. He probably wasn't a very nice guy. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, so that it went from there and, you know, after multiple, uh, counseling sessions with the guidance counselor with this girl just sitting there holding my hand. <laughs> oh, God, sorry. Um, it's okay. They finally um, convinced me to tell my mom. And and so I did. And uh, and we went to the police, but they, they, didn't, they didn't think that I was strong enough to stand any type of trial. They said that I had basically like something like Stockholm Syndrome. I was still defending my boyfriend saying mm. he wasn't involved because he had arranged the, all these things, but I didn't see it that way at the time. I was um, I was just in a really 
really weird place mentally. And, and I just, I wouldn't, I wouldn't admit that he would do something like that to me. So the police called all the people whose names I had, um, who most of them were students at my high school, but some of them were older, uh, but they called the, the ones who were students and told them that they had to stay within 50 yards away from me. And that was it. Nobody got kicked off the football oh team. Um, you know, so. That's uh, horrifying. It was. It really was. I um, mean, obviously the experience is horrifying, yes. but also then that nobody bothered to punish yeah. these. Yep, they got away with it. But um, very weirdly, I just recently... I shared an essay of of part of my story on Facebook and maybe it was even in the Me Too, you know, everybody was sharing their Me Too's and, and, uh, and I've been sharing my story before then um, written. It's definitely harder to talk about as you have seen, but um, recently somebody got in touch with me on Facebook and said that they have heard of other girls being repeatedly gang raped in Athens, Georgia, just like me around the same time. Oh my God. Um, so it's uh, it's heartbreaking to think that it also happened to other people. Oh, oh, these human beings are vile. I know, I know. So, unfortunately, my story of sexual assault doesn't end there because, as we you know, I say we're marked, but it it definitely did taper out. But the last time that I was sexually assaulted was um, when I was twenty two, and and uh, I haven't been hurt since in that regard. So that's that's good because I just turned forty. I really didn't deal with any of this until I was very cold about it. It was non-emotional. Like I would, my poor wife, when we had our first date when I was 25, I just l- listed like bullet points, everything that happened to me with zero emotion. <laughs> and she, wow. she was like, what the fuck? Um, <laughs> and, uh, but she stayed and, uh, but she didn't know what to do with a, a rape victim or survivor. And, and, uh, and I didn't know how to tell her either because I, I mean, I'm glossing over some things. I yeah. uh, was diagnosed with PTSD um, in, um, my, when I was 18, and I, I went to a psych ward. Um, I was on suicide watch. I got pregnant. Uh, I lost the baby. He had um, no brain, just a brain stem oh. keeping him alive. But this was this with a partner? It was willing. I was consensual okay. sex. Okay. Um, and that was the other thing. that. So apparently when you, after a woman or, or a man, or boy or girl is, um, or someone with no gender identity, uh, is uh, <laughs> so PC I, of you. I know. I know. Well, I, I do it for a living. I have to consider these things no, now. I, I um, appreciate <laughs> um, but oftentimes when people are sexually assaulted, they either turn kind of inwards and don't let anybody touch them, or they turn outwards and they seek affection from anyone. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that was for me, like, I, I only felt loved if somebody wanted me sexually, and that's all I thought was I was good for, and so I got into a, a quite a heap of trouble that way, and uh, and I ended up pregnant. I was eighteen. It was after I graduated from high school, but I was four months pregnant when I found out that my little boy didn't have a skull or a brain. He just had a brainstem keeping him alive, and so the doctors, like he's not, as soon as he hits air, he's going to die. So they, um, induced labor the next day. And, um, I did, I did. And I was in labor from 8am one morning till, um, like two in the afternoon the next day, just to give birth to this tiny little 
three ounce guy. Um, it was oh. sad, but when I had children of my own, I gave birth to twin boys in March of 2011. And in November, the Sandusky trial hit mm, or not the trial, yeah. but the news and, the news, yeah. and it, it completely ripped me up that I all of a sudden just had like every frozen castle around me. Like I, it just all came shattering down and I just had a meltdown um, realizing that I had been hurt and that I didn't deserve it. And that my mom had failed me in so many ways. Um, it just, I really identified with my mom, my mom with Joe Paterno. Yeah. And it was wow. just, it was really riveting, but. How had, did she react to the high school abuse once she found out? Uh, she was initially horrified, but then she really got into it. Like she told her whole church. What? And uh, yeah, she was, it was, my mother loves drama. And so it was, it just became her, I don't know, her. Her, her thing when we were going to the police about the rapes she said we'll tell them about the rapes but don't tell them about the police officer mm. because mm. I let you have alcohol and I could go to jail oh my god and I was, of course it made perfect sense to me at the time I loved my mom more than anything at that at that time she was my best friend it's like of course we don't want to get you in trouble and so but that solidified in my head that I really didn't matter Oh. And what had happened to me didn't matter. It matters. It matters and you matter. Thank you. All of that to say that after I had just a, a meltdown after the Sandusky news broke and I, I went and looked for a psychologist that I could start seeing and I did in the year after the boys were born. And I've, I've been, you know, off and on therapy ever since. So that's, you know, six years, but I've come a long way. At, yeah. I know it doesn't sound like it today, but. Oh, stop. No, I mean, I, I know you and we can give the listeners a little bit of context here amongst all of this, amongst pushing this down and pretending it didn't happen and then having right. it resurface. You've built an incredible business um, with your wife. You've written a book. Mm -hmm. You travel all over the world to be a speaker. I think it's extraordinary. Thank you. I, yeah, I'm, I'm very glad to have, I'm grateful to have been able to turn my life around. What I am so impressed by and what I think gives so much hope to anyone who maybe has experienced or is experiencing something like what you've been through mm -hmm. is you get to still have a complete life. This doesn't take that away from you. It's horrible and no one should experience it, but you're still a wonderful person and you have so much going for you and, and everybody who's in this situation, this doesn't have to define you. Absolutely. You're absolutely right, Heather. And I, it took me a long time to realize that I could, I could face it head on and it didn't have to define me, you know, like I didn't just have to pretend it didn't exist in order to have a life. I could face right. it, deal with it, work through, you know, the horrors of the emotions and, and everything that went along with it. And that I could come out on the other side. And yeah. Yeah. Would you say that being able to step up and, and have that be part of your story and not hide from it? Do you have any experience with that 
being helpful to others? Are you, is this something, I mean, you're clearly a fierce advocate for Me Too, as am Mm -hmm. I. Uh, I have, I don't know a woman who doesn't have a Me Too story, but I don't have (laughs) that kind of story. Um, Maybe like sexual harassment story? Certainly harassment. I was very close to being sexually assaulted uh, as a, what's about that age? Oh, gosh. 14, that sounds about right. Yeah. yeah, and he was my boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. and a, a, a friend. Uh, I'll have to, his name is Brian King, and, and Brian and I have had our ins and outs as friendships go over the last many, many years. I'm 43 now, so many years. Uh, but Brian came up and prevented that, and wow. Um, wow. all in all, I, am, I will always be grateful to him for that. Yeah. So yeah, we all have these stories, but do you feel like, is it helping Oh, absolutely. I think what helps me when I talk to, and it's, it's taken me a long time to actually find other sexual assault survivors. I know we're all out there, but I didn't have any in my immediate circle of friends or my larger circle of friends that told me anything, um, even though most of them started to learn you know, after, after I had the boys and, and started to really talk about my story. It took me a long time to find a group of women that have been through um, sexual assault uh, in in varying degrees, um, but it was a um, a private Facebook group where I did find some women who have um, been very helpful to me. And uh, but then I from there was able to discover the this world of people who are writing about their stories. Mm-hmm. And I you know I started working on my memoir not intentionally, but once I started going to therapy and, and really reliving my story, I started to write it all down. And I, my poor friend, Colleen, she, she's a, she's a book author. And I sent her like 40,000 words or something in the middle of the night. She had no (laughs) idea what was coming. She didn't know my story at all. And uh, not this part of my life. And, and so as soon as, you know, as soon as she stopped sobbing, um, she reached out and said, this is a book, you know, like, yeah. and, and, um, and so I've gone from there working on it, but meeting other women who have written about their experience with sexual assault has validated a lot of the feelings that I've had and, and made me feel so much less alone that yeah. I, I think it's really important that we all keep telling our stories, not only to feel less alone, help other people feel less alone, but also to help people who can prevent a situation that, you know, just, just stepping in the way of an abuser mm-hmm. um, in, in, in so many degrees of, you know, of the way that your friend did or, you know, a guidance counselor who is like, no, you're going to sit here today. You're going to sit here tomorrow. You're going to sit here the next day because I know something's going on. People who do those interventions, it, it, it could mean life or death for someone. Absolutely. And so um, I think it's important for us to continue to tell our stories so people think about what's happening outside of, you know, their own little safe world. I'm wondering, the young woman who took you into the guidance counselor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you stayed in touch with her? I did not until a couple of years ago. I found her on Facebook and I sent her a message and asked her, you know, is this you? Because she had changed her last name. She'd gotten married, but she didn't keep the, you know, her original name. 
in her Facebook name. And uh, she said it was. And so um, I said, I just want to thank you. Yeah. So we had, you know, a little bit of a, just a little bit of a Facebook moment yeah. there, but, but I was, I was grateful to be able to say that to her. So, I mean, it's interesting, d- despite all of the horrible, like somehow out of all of these, you're the lucky one that you didn't go down that path. That, Definitely. Um, yeah. I'm so this, grateful. Yeah. That, that this um, girl stepped in, that you right. met Maria, like all of these things, right? right. Um, right. And that leads me to a question that I ask, um, and it, it feels like an uncomfortable question after this oh, yeah. interview, yeah. but a question I ask at, at the end of every episode is how do you celebrate success? And, and quite frankly, Kirsten, I mean, you are an incredible success story and you've had to overcome so much more. I hope you're honoring that. So how do you celebrate when, when you're Oh my gosh. I honestly, like, you know, my biggest success is, um, you know, my children and my marriage. And, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of my achievements career wise, having written a book and do you mean, how do I celebrate? Like, do I have a glass of wine? Or, yeah, I mean, um, so anything. I, I'm a firm believer in celebrating yes. everyday successes, big ones and little ones. And mm-hmm. wow, I got that project done. I mean, I don't know. What did you do yeah. after you finished your book? What, when you hit? Oh, definitely popped that. open some champagne. <laughs> uh, and we definitely celebrate big moments here at home with our kids, you know, ice cream and, and all of that for big, yeah. um, big moments. And, and it's important to stop yeah. and be grateful mm-hmm. for things that are good, for things that we've done, for things that we've accomplished. I just think it's really, really important. Yes, I agree. Yeah, we uh, we do a gratitude circle at our table every night, talking about what we're grateful for. I and love that. We do that as well. Yeah. My boys and my wife, but more, mostly our, my boys are like, oh my God, you say family every night. <laughs> so, but family's always my answer, you know, that it. they are... Um, they're always there for me. And, and uh, it just, you know, that's irreplaceable, as you know. It is. Well, we do the favorite parts of the day. What did mm-hmm. you enjoy most in your day? And grateful. And inevitably, oh, my littlest, my five-year-old will say, I'm grateful for, to go around the table, for Mama and Olivia and Tessa and Eve and Bernadette and myself. I'm grateful <laughs> for myself. Good. It's, it's good. so cute. I love that. Yeah. I do too. I it's do so too. important. Yeah, I am. Um, I think that the more we raise our children and especially our girls to not shy away from that, yeah. uh, that we are, we are building strong women who hopefully will not be so set up to be treated as someone else's property or someone else's yeah. victim. Yeah. It's a hot topic around my house. We talk about it a lot. The rights, yeah. your rights. Is yes. it okay for somebody to touch you? If they don't want you? Is it okay for somebody to do anything that you don't yeah, want? To absolutely. Do? Yeah. yeah. My boys are like, my body, my rules. That's um, right. You know, I mean, I think it, at the end of the day, if we're not learning from, from yesterday and we're not putting forward into the universe or into the people that we know, you know, the lessons that we've learned, then we're not doing our job as humans. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, so we're coming to the close mm-hmm. on the show and I always end with um, charitable work because mm-hmm. it's deeply rooted in who I am as a, a person. Um, so will you share with us what your favorite charitable organization to support is? Oh my gosh. Well, the one closest to me currently, you know, RAIN is a big one for me. Can you tell us what that is? Oh, yeah. Um, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network. Okay. 
and uh, and so they've been around for a very long time working um, against uh, sexual violence and 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 being a, a great resource. But the organization that I that is closest to my heart currently that I really like actually do work with is um, and I've just rolled off of the board, but is Georgia Equality, and they've really yeah. made huge strides here in Georgia where I live in terms of equality for marriage, but also they're working toward helping pass a bill where we don't have a full comprehensive civil rights bill here in Georgia. So you can still be kicked out of your home, um, your, like your apartment. You can be fired for being gay uh, here in Georgia, and it's, it's just ridiculous. So Georgia Equality is doing a lot of work yeah. to try to rectify that. And uh, All um, of the and, different yeah. state equality groups, I think, are so important. Mm-hmm. We had uh, Brian Johnson, the CEO of Equality Illinois, was our first episode in the mm-hmm. show. So I love that. And yeah, I don't know. I couldn't, uh, hats off because I couldn't live in the South where, where I didn't have the rights that I have in the state of Illinois. So right. um, I know if I, if it wasn't already my home state, I don't think that we would have moved here. Yeah, I'm sure. So before we go, mm-hmm. can you share your three words with us one more time? Yes. Brave, joyful, love. Do you feel brave? I do. Actually, I really do. I'm so glad to hear you say that. I'm so glad to hear you say that. Your words are are beautiful words. They are they're all about living and and doing and being and embracing life and none of them are about being a victim and I am I love that. I I love that. I'm left a little bit speechless from this interview. As a mother to imagine my daughters going through this type of hell is is beyond comprehension. As a woman, I'm enraged by it. I'm, I'm, I'm angry, but I'm so glad that we're finally talking about it, that the Me Too movement has grown, and that these types of situations can no longer be ignored. We have to stop them. And I believe that the louder we are, the safer we are, because we are all in this together. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for listening. Kirsten, thank you so much. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here and and it was brave and it was vulnerable. And I know that it wasn't the easiest thing for you to do on a, a Tuesday afternoon. The show will air on a Thursday, but we're recording on a Tuesday. So thank you very, very, very much for being here with me. Of course. Now I really appreciate you giving me a forum uh, to share my story. I think that it will be helpful to others. So friends, that's all we have today. Uh, thank you for listening deeply, truly. Thank you for being here. Um, This is Heather Vickery reminding you, as always, to choose bravely. And I'll see you next week. The Brave Files is also supported by Frizz Marketing, a boutique marketing firm offering tailored services to small businesses and nonprofits. Frizz helps you distill your authentic story and get in front of the right audience. Contact them today at frizzmarketing.com. Thank you for listening to The Brave Files. Be sure to visit thebravefilespodcast.com to access the show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. Music composed and produced by Matt Lewis of Union Music, LLC.